right. First Samuel 21. Last week, final break between David and Saul. Saul's 100 percent committed to destroying David. And so David leaves. Saul lives in Gibeah and David decides it's time for him to leave. And that's where we're going to pick up today in chapter 21, verse one. David went to Nob to Ahimelech, the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he met him and asked, why are you alone? Why is no one with you? David answered Ahimelech, the priest, the king sent me on a mission. Excuse me. David answered Ahimelech, the priest, the king sent me on a mission and said to me, no one's know anything about the mission I'm sending you on. As for my men, I've told them to meet me at a certain place. Now, then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread, whatever you can find. But the priest answered David, I don't have any ordinary bread on hand. However, there's some consecrated bread here, provided the men have kept themselves from women. David replied, indeed, women have been kept for us as usual. Uh, have been kept from us as usual whenever I set out. The men's bodies are holy, even on missions that are not holy. How much more so today? So the priest gave him the consecrated bread, since there was no bread there except the bread of the presence that had been removed from the Lord and replaced by the hot bread on the day it was taken away. Now one of Saul's servants was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, Saul's chief shepherd. David asked Ahimelech, don't you have a spear or a sword here? I haven't brought my sword or any other weapon. Because the king's mission was urgent. The, the priest replied, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elias here. It's wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want it, take it. There's no sword here but that one. David said, there's none like it. Give it to me. Uh, so David flees Gibeah. He goes to Nob a couple of miles away. We don't know exactly why he went. That seems to be the holy city of the time. It's where the priests live. And uh, maybe he's going because he wants to ask the Lord what he should do. Uh, Maybe he's going because he's not sure who he can trust. And he's thinking maybe the priest will be friendly. Maybe he's going because he just needs a weapon and he knows that's where he's left Goliath's sword. We don't know, but he goes. And when he meets Ahimelech, the chief priest, the, the chief priest is nervous. He's nervous because David's by himself. He knows David as Saul's bodyguard and Saul's not with him. He knows David as a captain of a of a. But some troops and there are no troops with him. And he wants to know why David's alone. And David lies straight up. It's a lie. David lies uh, to Ahimelech. I think his heart was good. I think it was well-intentioned. I think he was trying to provide all ever confronts him. He can say, I didn't didn't know anything. So David lies, makes up a a mission that Saul sent him on. What he really needs um, are supplies. And so he asked for food, and the only food that's available is this holy bread. Every Sabbath, 12 loaves of bread were placed before the Lord, and that rotated. So every week, you take the old bread off and put fresh bread on. And the old bread could only be eaten by the priests. David's not a priest. He probably has two or three guys with him. They're not priests either. But Ahimelech says, kind of makes an interpretation. It's a judgment call, and he can do that as the high priest. And He follows the spirit of the law, which is really about life. And he says, it's okay, matter of life and death, food. As long as you guys have been been abstinent, then you can can have this bread. And David says, that's absolutely the case. And so he gives it to him. Jesus actually commends Ahimelech for doing that. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus references that story, really getting at the heart of the law versus the letter of the law. So Ahimelech made the right decision. There's this little aside almost. There's a... A man named Doeg who's there, and he's Saul's chief shepherd, and he's detained by the Lord. And nobody knows what that means. The word detained to me is negative. I think he's there against uh, his will. I don't think they're, they're not necessarily holding him, but I think there's some, there's some level of him being there against uh, his own 
will before the Lord. I think probably maybe some form of penance or, or something like that. Again, we don't know exactly as we continue to read. He comes back into the story and he's a wicked man. And so I don't think there's anything in him that's desiring to be in the Lord's presence. I think he's, again, maybe some level of penance or something like that that he's being held in this town. So then David says, I need a weapon as well. And he gets Goliath's sword. And that's the Goliath who... Who he, who he killed. And so we're going to pick up verse 10. That day David fled from Saul, so he's running for his life. He went to Achish, the king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, Isn't this David the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul is slain his thousands and David is tens of thousands. David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Achish said to his servants, look at the man. He's insane. Why bring him to me? Am I short of madmen that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? So David has run to Philistia. He's left Israel. He feels like he'd be safe there because Saul can't go after him in somebody else's Territory. I want you to think about whether it says how desperate David is or how bold he is. He's, he's gone to Gath. That's where Goliath was from, who he killed. And he's got Goliath's sword in his hand. And that's the town that he chooses to go to. He doesn't realize how famous he is. And he gets there and the people in Philistia are saying the same thing that the women in Israel said about him. Saul's slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And he gets really nervous about that. The cities are walled. There's limited uh, places of, of access. It's not like Marietta where there's a hundred ways you could leave the city. There's one way that you can leave the city. And so he gets really nervous because they know who he is and probably rightfully so. And so he acts crazy. He's trying to crazy people are, are not just not a threat. They're a nuisance. And so he acts insane. He's trying to get kicked out of the city. That's his ultimate goal. Uh, If you want to see, we don't have time to look at it, what's going on in David's heart. You can read Psalm 34. He wrote that during this time. And you can see there was an expression of faith and trust in the Lord that he was acting the way that he was acting. It's a great psalm to read along with uh, this action here in uh, 1 Samuel 21. So David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were in distress... Or in debt or discontented gathered around him. And he became their commander. About 400 men were with him. From there David went to Mizpah and Moab and said to the king of Moab, Would you let my father and mother come and stay with you until I learn what God will do for me? So he left them with the king of Moab and they stayed with him as long as David was in the stronghold. But the prophet Gad said to David, Don't stay in the stronghold. Go into the land of Judah. So David left and went to the forest of Hereth. So David leaves Gath. He escapes. Thankful that that happened. He goes to a cave in Adullam. We don't know how he went there. It's about 16 miles from Bethlehem where his family was. His family comes to him. They probably feel like they're um, under some uh, danger, in some danger from Saul. He's shown a willingness to kind of go after anyone who's at, at all aligned with David. And so they come to him in the cave along with this group of 400 discontented and in debt and um, distressed people. That's, that's who you're wanting if, when you're on the run. Those are the kind of people that you want standing with you. And what he 
they're coming with him because they don't, they don't, I don't think they have any sense of who David is going to be. I don't think they have any sense that he's got a calling on his life to be the king. I don't think there's necessarily anything righteous in their hearts. I think what they see is, well, this guy is a strong military leader and Saul is after him. Maybe, maybe he'll overthrow Saul. And we, in our situation, we've got no, we've got nothing to lose. We've got no stake in the status quo. So maybe we align ourselves with David. David overthrows Saul. And because we hitched our wagon to that horse early on, we'll get something out of it. That's what I think is probably going on with these guys, at least initially. I think they're drawn to him because they see in him uh, someone who can possibly lead them as this group of really of, of fugitive and outlaws in some way. Hopeful that maybe he can provide some leadership and create a better life for them. His parents come to him. They're old at this point, and he wants to keep them safe, so he goes to Moab, another non-Israelite territory. We don't know where Mizpah is. It's somewhere in Moab. That's where his great-grandmother Ruth was from. So he's going back to some ancestral homeland. He says to the king, can you keep my parents safe? And the king says, absolutely. And while he's there, he gets word from a prophet, Gad. We haven't met Gad before. He probably doesn't come to Moab, but sends messengers to David and says, it's a word from the Lord. You've got to come back. You can't stay in Moab any longer. Come back to Judah. Now, remember, think about David. David does. He goes to some place called the Forest of Hereth, and we don't know where that is either. It's in Judah. Think about the faith that that takes. When he's in Philistia or he's in Moab, he's out of the reach of Saul. Those are not places where Saul can go or where Saul can send troops. Those are foreign countries. When he goes back to Judah, he's putting himself in Saul's backyard again. He said it's a huge risk. Wisdom says you stay out of Israel and Judah because Saul's the king of that area and he can come after you. Revelation says you can't stay in Moab any longer. You've got to go back to Judah. And David obediently does that. We'll pick up there next week with his travels. Meanwhile, David's running for his life. And here's what Saul is doing. Now, Saul heard that David and his men had been discovered. And Saul was seated, spear in hand, under the tamarisk tree on the hill at Gibeah, with all his officials standing at his side. He said, listen, men of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give all of you fields and vineyards? Will he make all of you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? Is that why you've conspired against me? No one tells me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is concerned about me or tells me that my son has incited my servant to lie in wait for me as he does today. He's moaning and complaining. And he's saying to these guys, he's from Benjamin. So this is his inner circle. These are his, his tribesmen. And he's saying, is David going to treat you better than me? Is that why y'all are treating me this way? You've all formed this conspiracy against me, which is not true. You see the paranoia in Saul. And he says, you know, my son made a covenant. Jonathan made a covenant with David and y'all didn't tell me. And he incited David, who's now lying in wait. David's not lying in wait. He's running away. He's trying to get as far away from Saul as he can. You see this full-blown paranoia. And in the midst of that, when Saul is kind of running through this jag, Doeg the Edomite, who is standing with Saul's official, said, I saw the son of Jesse come to Ahimelech. Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him. He also gave him provisions and the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then Saul sent for the priest Ahimelech and all the men of his family who were the priests of Nob. And they all came to the king. And Saul said, listen, yes, my Lord, Ahimelech answered. Saul said to him, why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse? 
giving him bread and a sword, inquiring of the Lord for him so that he has rebelled against me and lies in wait for me as he does today. Ahimelech answered, who of all your servants is as loyal as David, the king's son-in-law, captain of your bodyguard and highly respected in your household? Was that day the first time I inquired of God for him? Of course not. Let not the king accuse your servant or any of his father's family, for your servant knows nothing at all about this whole affair. But Saul said, you will surely die, Ahimelech, you and your whole family. Then the king ordered the guards at his side, turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because they too have sided with David. They knew he was fleeing, yet they did not tell me. But the king's officials were unwilling to raise a hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king ordered Doeg, you turn and strike down the priests. So Doeg the Edomite turned and struck them down. That day he killed 85 men who wore the linen, the linen ephod. Those were priests. He also put to the sword Nob, the town of the priests, with its men and women, its children and infants, and its cattle, donkeys, and sheep. But one son of Ahimelech escaped and fled to join David. His name is Abiathar. He told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Then David said to Abiathar, that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, I knew he would be sure to tell Saul, I'm responsible for the death of your whole family. Stay with me. Don't be afraid. The man who wants to kill you is trying to kill me too. You'll be safe with me. So new low for Saul. So uh, he's complaining about this conspiracy that doesn't exist against him. Doeg, I think, sees an opportunity. Again, he's, he's a wicked Man, he's got something against the people at Nob. Whatever it meant to be detained before the Lord, he sees an opportunity, I think, to exact a little revenge. And so he says, hey, he tells, I saw David with Ahimelech, and here's what he did. He inquired of the Lord. We didn't see that at the beginning, but Ahimelech admits it. So, yes, he asked God what David should do. He gave him food. He gave him a sword. And Ahimelech doesn't know anything. David didn't tell him the truth, and he says, I I didn't know. David's the most loyal guy you've got. How was I supposed to know? And Saul, no trial, no evidence, no other witnesses, nothing, just says, you're done. And he orders Ahimelech to be killed along with every man in his family who's a priest. Nobody will do it. None of his guys will do it. They know he's crazy and that this verdict is unjust. But Doeg's willing, and he kills all of the priests, and then he goes to the town and he raises the whole town. He kills every living thing in the town. One guy gets away, Abiathar. He actually connects to David and stays with him for a while. And David takes responsibility. We said at the beginning, the goal for us as we look at First and Second Samuel is to figure out and discern what does it mean to be a man after God's own heart. It doesn't mean to be sinless, but this is a piece of it. Something we see in David we never see in Saul. Saul never takes responsibility for his choices. He lies. He blames. David says, it's my fault. If I had killed Doeg, then this wouldn't have happened. Well, we're going to go a step farther back and say, if you hadn't lied, then I don't know if we don't know what would have happened. But he takes responsibility and he brings Abiathar in and says, Saul wants to kill me. He wants to kill you. We'll be safe together. None of you are ever going to be a fugitive, right? Not in the cards. So looking at these two chapters, it, it could be hard to know what to glean because we're not going to be on the run from somebody who's trying to kill us. One of the things I think you see here, and it, it, it does have to do, again, David's not sinless. He takes responsibility for his actions and recognizes his need for the Lord. That's really what it means to be a man after God's own heart is to recognize your need and your dependence upon the Lord, something Saul never does. What we see here with David last week and this week, though, is two times, I think, with the best of intentions, he lies. 
One time he gets Jonathan to lie. That was in chapter 20. They run that game on Saul. Uh, uh, David doesn't show up for a meal he's supposed to be. He's supposed to eat at. And, and Saul asks Jonathan, hey, where's David? And Jonathan's supposed to lie. Uh, he went home. He went to go be with his family. And I said that was okay. And Saul explodes at Jonathan. Really angry at him. Throws a spear at him and tries to kill him. Here we see David lies to Ahimelech. Again, I think with the best of intentions, he's trying to help him, provide him with some cover in case Saul ever were to question their relationship. Now, I don't know what it would have happened if David would have told him the truth. If when Ahimelech said, why, is nervous, obviously, that David's here, and what are you doing here? If he said, listen, Saul's trying to kill me, and I'm just trying to stay alive. And I'm hungry, and I don't have any people with me, and I don't have a weapon. Can you help me? I don't know what would have happened. Ahimelech may have said, no way, I'm not helping you. And he may have turned him in. Ahimelech may have said, yes, I'll help you. And then he still may have gotten killed. And the whole family still may have gotten wiped out. The whole town may have still gotten wiped out. But at least it would have been based on a decision that Ahimelech made. Because David lied, he didn't have, he took the choice away from Ahimelech. He didn't have an opportunity to do anything. To prepare himself, to prepare his people, to say yes, to say no. It's an unintended consequence. David, I think, with, again, the best of motives, twice uses deception. And in both times, it, it, it really makes things worse. Saul is already paranoid. He's 100% responsible for his choices. But when he finds out his son lied to him about David, that's just fuel for the fire for him. That's all that is. That just, that just confirms these suspicions that he has. Again, even though it's not true, you can see how someone who's already moving in that direction, someone who's already demonically jealous of losing his position as king, when he hears my son, who is next in line to the throne, is conspiring or, or lying for David, who appears to be God's choice, you can see why he would, again, get even more paranoid and try to kill Jonathan, twice, again, I think with the best of intentions, David uses deception. And it really blows up in his face. We can't do, Eugene Peterson said this, we can't do God's work in a non-God way. We can't do Jesus' work in a non-Jesus way. David's attempting to be obedient. He asks Ahimelech, I think he goes there to ask the Lord, what am I supposed to do? What he says to the king of Moab is, will you keep my parents safe until I find out what the Lord will do for me? He's still trying to trust the Lord. He wants to do the right thing. He doesn't do it in God's way. He uses deception. The ends never justify the means. How we do things matters. Jesus was tempted to do God's work in a non-God way. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record before Jesus begins his public ministry. He's led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Forty days he doesn't eat. Luke says during that time, so throughout that time, he's tempted by Satan. Matthew makes it sound like it's at the very end that he is. And it's, it's probably both. There's temptations all along. And then at the very end, there's this kind of final um, onslaught by Satan to try to get Jesus to, to do God's work. In a way that doesn't honor him. And, and Jesus could have sinned. And that's important for you to get in your mind. Phili- uh, excuse me, not Philippians. Hebrews 4.15 says, We have a high priest who can sympathize with us in our weakness because he was tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. G- if, if, if the temptation wasn't real, then Jesus can't relate. 
because the temptation for us is real. It's not it's not a game. We actually can succumb to those temptations. And so could he. He's the second Adam and like the first Adam in the garden. He doesn't have a sin nature, but he absolutely can choose obedience or disobedience, independence or dependence, submission or rebellion. The first Adam chose rebellion and independence. The second Adam chooses submission and dependence upon the Lord. He could have sinned, and he didn't. And he didn't not sin because he was the Son of God. That doesn't help us either. The reason he didn't sin is because he was a man filled with the Holy Spirit. And as someone who follows Jesus, the same resources are available to you. As a man or a woman who follows Jesus, you too can be filled with the Holy Spirit and you can resist temptation. We talked about that a few weeks ago. We submit ourselves to the Lord. We resist Satan and then he will flee from us. So Jesus is tempted in a very real way, just like we are. And that allows us what the the encouragement from Hebrews is. Then you can boldly approach the throne of grace because you've got someone who gets what it's like to be you, who knows what it's like to struggle with temptation. So go with confidence to him. He gets it. He understands. So we're going to look at these three temptations of Jesus really briefly. We're going to use Matthew's version. And as we're doing that, I want you thinking in your mind, am I being tempted? Where am I being tempted to do God's work? So how do we want to define God's work? Anything that the Lord's attempting to do in you or through you, your own personal growth, becoming more like Jesus. It may be something in your family to see your family flourish in some way. It may have something to do with your business and your business growing or being a blessing. It may have something to do with our community and seeing our community transformed. Any of those good works, that's God's work. And we're tempted to do those things in a way that's not God. And again, Jesus was tempted as well. So really briefly, first temptation. Jesus hadn't eaten for 40 days. Hungry. Really hungry. And Satan comes to him and says, you're the son of God. Since you're the son of God, don't hear if as, I'm not sure that you're the son of God, but hear if as since. Since you're the son of God, why don't you feed yourself? Make lunch. Not hard for you. You have the power and the authority to do this. There's nobody out here. No one's going to see. No one's going to know. Nothing's at risk. You're starving. You haven't eaten for 40 days, so why don't you make yourself some bread? Jesus' response Man doesn't live by bread alone, but from every mouth that proceeds, or every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He's going back to Deuteronomy, and that's a, that quote is taken in the context of the Israelites when they're in the desert. And they've been living on manna. Remember manna, 40 years while the Israelites are in the desert. Every morning they wake up and there's this wafer-like substance on the ground. It comes up like the dew, and they eat it. And they can only gather enough for the day. If they get too much, it rots. If they try to save for the next day, it rots. You get enough for every day except Friday. You get two days worth because you're not allowed to work on Saturday. And so this temptation to take these good things that God has given and to use them to meet your own needs, to live independently of God. That's what Satan is saying. He's given you this authority. He's given you this power. Why don't you use that authority and use that power to feed yourself? Since you're the son of God, there's no reason for you to be hungry. Jesus' response is, that's not the way it works. Manna is an expression of daily dependence. Every day I have to believe God and receive what he has for me for that day. And Jesus says, that's how I'm going to live. I'm going to let God take care of my needs. I'm going to trust him to provide for me. Mark talks about angels um, ministering to Jesus after this. And most commentators say that they they were providing him food. It was coming. 
It came through these angels, not through Jesus exerting his own power and authority. You're tempted. I'm tempted in the same way. Since you are the boss, since you are the parent, since you are smart, since you're well-spoken, since you're rich, since you're well-connected, why don't you fill in the blank? Why don't you take care of yourself? It's not put that brazenly to us. It's much more subtle. Since you have this position or since you have these resources or since you have these gifts, why don't you use those good things that God has given you to meet your own needs? Live independently of him. Most of us would say, there's no way. That's not me. I don't do that. Let me get in your kitchen a little bit. Where are you praying? If you're not praying, by default, you're living on your own. The only way that God is active in your life is when you ask him. And asking is prayer. If you're not praying, then you're not inviting him to get involved. You may be riding on the coattails of someone's intercession for you, and that's good for you. Absolutely. But in your own heart, you're not engaging him. You're not asking him to get involved in your life. And if you're not, then what are you left with? Just your own resource, just yourself. You're left with the position he's given you, the resources he's given you, the gifts and talents that he's given you. And you may be trying your best. I'm not saying none of us. It's not it's not wickedness in us. But it's not dependence upon him. It's using what he's given us on our own, divorced from his involvement. It's turning stones into bread. And we say we can't do that. We do it all the time. We do it all the time. We turn our money. We turn our Intellect, we turn our gifts, we turn our positions into what we need all the time. Where are you praying? Or maybe a better question is, where are you not? Think through your life. Go around the wheel. If there are areas where you're not asking God to get involved, he's not going to get involved. And so in that area, again, by default, you're turning stones into bread. I want to encourage you. Begin to cultivate a heart of dependence. Let prayer be for you the beginning of saying, God, I recognize my need. I recognize my weakness. I recognize that in this area, I've got nothing. And I need you to get involved. Normally, what pushes us to prayer is when nothing else works. Is when the doctors say there's nothing else we can do. It's when we look at a situation and we can't see the way forward. In those times of desperation, we do genuinely ask the Lord to get involved. What I want you to do is step that way back. Before you get to that point, begin to ask him to get involved. Ask him to get involved in your business, in your home, in your heart, in your city, in your finances, in your health. Ask him to get involved. That's living dependently upon him. Then Satan takes Jesus up on to the pinnacle of the temple, the highest point in the temple, wherever that was, and says, jump. It'll be great. There's all kinds of people here, and they'll see it. And they'll, they'll listen to you. You'll draw a crowd. It'll be spectacular. And then whatever you say, they'll be eating out of your hand. And Jesus says, no. No, I'm not going to test God that way. We don't put the Lord to the test. This is maybe, I think everyone is tempted to turn stones into bread. There's, a, there's maybe a smaller subset. We're tempted to do something spectacular for God. If it's not great, we're not interested. It's got to be big. We move when there's a hurricane. Otherwise, we don't. It's big and it's grand and it's 
impressive and those are the things that stir us to get involved and when we and maybe it's with the best of intentions and and maybe you've said and maybe you've heard attempt something so great for God that if he doesn't show up you're bound to fail and there's some sincerity in that absolutely some of that is pure but that's not necessarily God's way when Jesus talks about the kingdom what does he say it's a mustard seed which is not impressive at all not at all it's the smallest thing it's the smallest seed they've got Nothing about it is great or grand. Even if we're not tempted to do something spectacular, most of us are tempted to despise the ordinary. What God says to Zechariah, he says, don't despise the day of small beginnings when Zechariah is about to rebuild the temple. And he's, he's just beginning. Don't despise the day of small beginnings. The kingdom doesn't stay small, but it starts small. I want to encourage you, wherever God has planted you, what does it look like for you to... Plant mustard seeds in that place. What does it look like for you to be faithful over time? Small acts of love and kindness and faithfulness and obedience over time. It's not glamorous. We get tired because we don't see results. But over time, seeds become trees. We're all tempted at times, I think. Say, this isn't, this isn't worth my time. This isn't worth my time. I'm not getting anything out of this. I'm not seeing any fruit. And we quit. I want to encourage you. Plant mustard seeds and continue to do so. Then the enemy takes Jesus up on a hill and shows him Jerusalem and says, It's yours. All the kingdoms of the world, they're all yours. You just worship me. Those kingdoms have already been promised to Jesus. Psalm 2, the Father says to the Son, Ask for me and I'll give you the nations as your inheritance. And what the enemy is tempting Jesus with is, Hey, you can reign without suffering. You can get your inheritance without dying. He's, it, it, it's, a, it's the avoidance of suffering. And this is one I think all of us can fall into as well. We're not conditioned that way. We live in such a comfortable atmosphere. Usually when things get difficult, we assume that's a sign that God's not in it. If it's hard, then God's not in it. If it costs me, then God's not in it. It's not what you see in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's not what you see in Jesus' life. It's not what you see in the 12 disciples. It's not what you see in Paul. They actually say it's going to be difficult. Paul says, here are all the difficulties I face, and he lists them. Jesus says, take up your cross daily and follow me. Expect suffering. Don't, it's nothing necessarily to be avoided. You don't have to run to it. It's going to find you. But when you suffer, don't assume. That means God's not in it. Most of us, I've... We've talked about Jackie Pullinger before, missionary to China. She says God's looking for people with soft hearts and hard feet. And he finds people with hard hearts and soft feet. And what we want is to develop those tough feet. We want to be people who stand firm to the end. We don't want to be like that type of soil that's shallow. And persecution comes because of our commitment to Jesus. And we wither and die. We don't want that to be us. How do we cultivate those deep roots in the Lord? Two things you can do. One is worship. That's love. That's um, growing in your love for him. Paul says in Ephesians 3, pray that God would give you the grace, that God would allow you to comprehend the vastness of his love. That's recognizing he's worth it. He's worth frustration. He's worth struggling. He's worth suffering. And I would say in addition to that, Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 talks about training his body and beating his body and running as someone who won't be disqualified. 
We live in a comfortable society. And so sometimes when there's pushback, our response, we're not tough. We haven't been conditioned. It's trying to play when you haven't practiced. You're not, it's hard to get through the game. It's really hard. What would it look like for you, like Paul, to begin to train your body? I don't know exactly one discipline you may want to consider and that I would lay out for you is fasting. It's not fun at all. None. It's terrible. It is. It's denying your body. It's saying yes to, to the spirit and denying the flesh. That's what you're doing. You need to eat. You need to eat. You can't live without eating. And when you skip intentionally before the Lord a meal or a day's worth of meals or two days worth of meals, it's not fun. It reminds you of your own weakness. But what you're doing in that is you're saying no to your body. You're training it. You're not the boss of me. My appetites are not the boss of me. My hunger is not the boss of me. That's what you're doing when you're fasting. I would encourage you to prayerfully consider it. Some people physically are unable to fast. You don't need to try to do something that you're not physically uh, able to do. Medically is what I mean. Nobody physically likes it. What would it look like for you to begin to train your body? Where are you telling yourself no? Where are the places where you're suffering in order to say yes to Jesus? If there's no places where you're doing that now, when persecution comes, how are you going to be ready? I don't get it. It's like if you, if you never train, how are you going to be ready when it's time to play? If you never practice, how are you going to be ready when it's the game? It, for you, it may not be fasting. There may be other ways where you're saying no to your flesh and no to your appetites and no to comfort even in some ways. And it can sound masochistic, and that's not what I mean. But it's this point of saying, I, I want to have tougher feet. I, I don't want to fade when things get difficult. I don't want to assume that frustration or suffering, it means God's not in it. And so I'll pull back because I'm uncomfortable. Pulling back in obedience is fine, being redirected in that way, but moving off of something because I don't feel comfortable or because it's difficult, I don't know that that's okay. I would say it's not. So I want to encourage you. We're going to close with prayer. I want you to close your eyes. I want you to pick one. I don't want any of you to feel heavy. I don't want you to feel weighted down. I'm not telling you what to do. I want you to recognize there's work that God has for you in your own heart, in your family, in your school, in your business, in this city. And you will be tempted to try to do the work that he has for you to do in a way that he doesn't have for you to do. You will be tempted to do God's work in a non-God way. Jesus was. And if he was, you will be. And so will I. So I want you to grab on which of those temptations resonates with you the most. Are you tempted to turn stones into bread? Jesus' way is to depend daily upon the Father. Would you say that characterizes your life? Think about prayer. Are you inviting him into every sphere on a regular basis? I'm not asking you if you're praying for an hour a day. But I am asking you if you are regularly inviting him in. God, I need you to get involved in this. Not just in areas where you feel at a loss. 
God, I actually have the resources to address this. But I don't want to do it on my own. I'm asking you to get involved. God, I see the way through this. But I want to take a step without a sense of peace in my heart. It's the right thing to do. Are you tempted to do Jesus's? Are you, are you tempted to only do the spectacular? Jesus has work for you to do, and much of that work plays out over years, not over weeks. He does move suddenly. But usually the suddenly was preceded by a long period of waiting and preparation. Do you despise the day of small beginnings? I love, I love the splash. I love something that's postable. I love something that garners attention. Maybe not even for me. God, would you give me grace to plant mustard seeds? To be faithful over time. To be persistent and consistent. To persevere. To not grow weary in doing well. Are you tempted this morning to do Jesus' good work in your life and through you in this community? Are you tempted to do that in a way that avoids suffering? Do you want the fruits of ruling and reigning with Jesus, but you're not willing to be refined? That cliche, are you looking for resurrection without crucifixion when something gets difficult this is harsh are you a quitter would you ask the Lord it's not about hanging on for the sake of hanging on but we want to have deep roots we want to stand firm until the end would you ask the Lord God I need tougher feet I need you to strengthen me. I want to grasp the vastness of your love. I would recognize you're worth it. You're the pearl of great price. And I want your spirit to be the boss of me. Not my flesh. Not my appetites. Not even my wants. Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you speak to each one of us? I pray that you would encourage us. You'd recognize you're giving us insight in the way the enemy wants to steal and kill and destroy. None would hear this as a burden that they have to carry, but an opportunity. We talked about getting rid of those handholds. It's an opportunity to have our hearts conform more into the image of your Son. We want to do the work that you've called us to and the way that you've called us to do it so that you get the maximum amount of glory. So speak to us now, I pray.